Hello and welcome to The Natural Evolution, produced by Rebel Health Tribe, a radio show focused on providing you with inspiration, education, and tools for true healing and transformation. I'm Michael, and I'll be your guide on this adventure as together we explore the very nature of the healing journey. And we're recording an episode here with Kathleen DiChiara, whose name I pronounced on the first try perfectly. Uh, <laughs> Kathleen, how are you doing? I'm great. Thanks. Awesome. Thanks for being here. I'm really excited to, to get into your story today. Uh, you were actually recommended by somebody in our Rebel Health Tribe audience when they found out about the podcast. And they said, you need to look up Kathleen and hear her story. And I watched the video on your site and and read through everything. And it's it's really amazing. So I'm I'm excited for everybody who doesn't know you to get to know you a little bit and hear your story and and hopefully they can relate to what you've been through and, and take as much inspiration out of it as I'm sure a lot of people have. So uh, before we get started, if you don't know Kathleen, she's a leading expert in functional nutrition and gut health with a particular interest in how the loss of microbial diversity leads to chronic disease. She's a functional diagnostic nutrition practitioner like myself and bio-individual nutrition practitioner, integrative nutrition health coach, advocate, and professionally trained chef. For the past 10 years, she's been committed to dismantling the chronic disease epidemic by teaching women how to reconnect to their nutritional wisdom so they can harness the power of their microbiome to regenerate health at home. Most of her research sits at the intersection of mindset, daily habits, and the microbiome, which she describes in her most recent award-winning book, End Chronic Disease, The Healing Power of Beliefs, Behaviors, and Bacteria. You broke into the field of nutrition to uncover the root causes of your own diseases, and went from at one point competing in triathlons and working in capital markets at a Fortune 500 company to becoming completely disabled at age 35. And also around the same time, your son was diagnosed with autism. So we can tell the rest of the story on the podcast, but that is quite a U-turn um, from triathlons, Fortune 500 work to completely disabled. And um, I would guess growing up and even your early professional life, you were not anticipating a career in nutrition and microbiome and health coaching, correct? That's right. So that wasn't on your radar at all? Not at all. (laughs) I was, I did love food. You know, I always thought, you know, because my, I loved exercise and, um, you know, fitness and those kinds of things, which I, I had kind of a love for in my teens, um, and I always thought I was eating healthy and living a healthy lifestyle. So I definitely envisioned myself being health conscious, but um, definitely did not foresee this as, you know, I had a love for business and uh, entrepreneurship and those kinds of things. So I was very happy in that. So you were 35. Did it take time to get to that point or was this an abrupt symptom onset? How, how did this... So you're in your early mid thirties, you're exercising a lot, competing in triathlons, working. Uh, how many kids did you have at that time? I had two at the time. So I had two boys. I had a three-year-old and an 18 month old. Okay. And yeah, I was under a lot of stress. Um, we had just bought a new house and we were still carrying the mortgage on the other house, which had not sold. And I was working very long days. So very long hours, you know, uh, working in Boston and commuting from Rhode Island. And it was sudden onset neuropathy that I actually developed in my left leg. Uh, that's how it came on. Uh, you know, I think it was stress induced, but I think it was also an inflammatory condition that was induced. And I also think I had undiagnosed celiac, which in hindsight, you know, I didn't know. I mean, I had conditions early on, even in t- as a teenager, I had a duodenal ulcer that went undiagnosed. I had cystic acne that I had been treated with Accutane and other aggressive medications. Um, so the things that I know now obviously pointed out some red flags um, that I can see, you know, created some type of a pattern there. But so there were some, some warning signs. Um, so by the time that, that the neuropathy uh, came on, it did feel very sudden, felt unrelated, uh, and it was unresolvable. So it, it came on quickly, but then uh, did not resolve on its own. And I ultimately ended up needing back surgery. So it was related to a disc at an L4, L5. So I had a discectomy, laminectomy, which means they carved the bone uh, to get access to the nerve. And then um, 
remove some portion of the nerve. And when I woke up from that surgery, I was paralyzed. Wow. Temporarily. Was it a surgical error? It wasn't. They did a CAT scan immediately to see if they had severed the nerves in my lower back, which they did not. So that was a good sign. We're just kind of a trauma response from your body. It was a trauma response. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 Surgeries are, people don't, I've done a lot of study into trauma the last three years and people don't realize that you're asleep during a surgery, but your body isn't. That's right. And so people often experience shifts in their health, in their emotional states, in all kinds of areas after surgeries. And they don't think anything of it because to them, they went there, got knocked out, woke up, was finished, went home. But the body goes through the process of the surgery. Yes. Wow. And what's interesting about that, Michael, is um, I had had in 1997. So that surgery was in 2007. So 10 years before that, um, I had been... uh, viciously attacked by 240 pound Akitas. So those are Japanese attack dogs that were, uh, that I was a runner at the time. So not doing triathlons, but a competitive racer. I also owned my own transportation company. So I used to do livery, like uh, I had a livery plate and I used to do corporate travel. So I would pick up executives and take them from the airport to business locations. Uh, as I said, it was kind of an entrepreneur geek and, um, I had dropped off a vehicle at a mechanic shop and went to pick it up myself. I went to work out at a gym and then I went to pick it up. And the two attack dogs got me in the parking lot and attacked me uh, and bit through my quadricep, severed my IT band in my right leg. uh, And then I went into shock. I actually um, thought I was going to be mauled to death and killed. So I went into shock. And the employees at that location peeled the dogs off of me, separated their mouths, and then put me in the back of a van and drove me to an emergency room. And I ended up having reconstructive surgery. When was this on your timeline? This is before you got sick, right? This is before. This is before. But to your point, I ended up having a post-traumatic stress disorder as a result of that attack. And it triggered a very severe fear, obviously, of animals, which I, which I since had resolved, but I had to go through extensive therapy, um, physical therapy and mental therapy to, to get over that traumatic experience. And I suspect now that then the 10 years later, having the neuropathy, which was now in my other leg, but then having the surgery that sometimes I think that because we store memories in our tissue, when the body is then operated on, uh, we can release information or trauma that is stored in our tissue, even if it seems unrelated to a previous event. Uh, So my suspicion for myself is that, like you said, even though I was unconscious during that procedure, I had a traumatic experience that my body went through and it went into shock. And uh, that's exactly what happened. Yeah. That happens all the time with body work. Actually, I have friends who are body workers and they'll be working on somebody like massage or some other forms of body work and they'll tweak a certain spot and somebody will just start sobbing or they'll freeze up or like, I wrote about that in my book in, in, um, in end chronic disease. I wrote about one of the, uh, the belief systems that I think drives chronic disease is that we don't see the relationship between the emotions and I wrote about that experience. I was having fascial work done uh, mm-hmm. as part of my recovery from my back surgery after the paralysis and um, because I had to learn how to walk again. And I was getting fascial work at the scar tissue at my surgery and I started crying. And, she, and I didn't know why because she wasn't doing anything that was painful. She was releasing the pelvic area. And she knew she was actually trained in this work. She had trained out in Sedona and she was very, very... Um, well-educated on the deep tissue and the fascial work and, and the energy of what happens when people go through traumatic experiences. And she said, no, you, you have emotions are stored in tissue and you, uh, just, it's just coming up and it's perfectly normal and whatever is happening, just let it come out. And it was uh, beyond my control. I absolutely was releasing an incredible amount of emotion there. So I did talk about that. Um, and one of the reasons I talked about that was because I, you know, in my work now with nutrition, I talk about this with people because I can dial in on your diet and you can have the perfect diet Mm -hmm. and have exercise and movement and all the things. And yet, if you are are not recognizing that 
tissue and your body is really storing data and storing those emotions and holding on to things, uh, then, then we're not recognizing that that's a healing opportunity and that you are potentially really holding yourself locked in. So um, it was really just for people to acknowledge that it's there. Yeah. It's incredible. And, and to share that that, that that was my experience too, like you said. Yeah, it's, it's pretty remarkable. I've been studying a lot in that area the last few years, and it's helped me realize how incomplete my approach was when I was working only with nutrition and lifestyle and supplements and lab tests. And there'd be the people who get a little bit better, but not all the way better. Right. Or they have relapses or there's yeah. like symptoms you can't figure out and it doesn't make any sense. And yeah. I noticed that oftentimes they had extremely stressful, like life situations or really unhealthy relationships, or they'd tell me about some traumatic uh, thing that had happened. So I started to kind of piece that together, but I didn't know what to do with it. Like, it was just kind of interesting. Like I, I knew that was outside of my yeah. like scope and I didn't, yeah. I hadn't been through my own work in that area. So I really had no idea what to do. Yeah. And I'm kind of seeing a lot of the functional medicine world be in that same place right now. Like they've realized that it's the elephant in the room. That's the thing that nobody yeah, knows how to address from. or work yeah. with. And now I, I'm seeing a bit of a scramble to address it. And that's actually, um, platform I've been working on for two years is to address that for functional medicine people and give them a, a place where they can send people to find that kind of work. But um, yeah, it's it's super interesting and fascinating. And it, and it goes back to like what medicine was before it is now anyway, like yeah. that was always part like of a full circle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah, so yeah. That, that that went away for a while. And now it's, <laughs> now it's back. Um, yeah, it didn't so, go away. We just covered it up. So you woke up paralyzed from where like the waist down kind of? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And what so was I just stayed in the hospital for a week and then they I was transported home and I was bedridden here. So at home we had a guest bedroom where I stayed. What was that like when you first realized you couldn't move your legs? Um well, I mean, the initial response was I was horrified in the hospital because I I was alone, I was isolated. My husband was home with the with the boys. We had the two little um toddlers. And I couldn't turn over. I couldn't get to the phone in the in the room. And I couldn't get to my buzzer. I couldn't buzz the nurse. So I... You just had to wait for somebody to walk in. I ended up getting to the phone to call him. And I called him and I said, I need help. And he couldn't. He said, this, this, the hospital is closed, but I'm coming. So he ended up calling a neighbor and had the neighbor come over in the middle of the night or it's like probably 11 o'clock at night or something. I must have woken up from my surgery. So the nurses were, someone was probably at the nurse's station, but not, you know, they weren't doing like yeah. their rounds or whatever. I remember being really dark and he broke into the hospital. Like in other words, the visiting hours were over. So he waited for someone to leave and just went in and just found his way up to my room, like after hours and came in and he you know, basically was like, what, what is the matter? What, what's happening here? You know? And I was like, I don't know what's wrong. Something's wrong. So from there, it's kind of um, that whole experience of that whole moment isn't clear to me about what transpired next other than getting the CT scans. I mean, I know that the doctor was quite nervous about whether or not he had done some damage and you know, after the CT scan, he assured you, like, we didn't yeah, cut your nerve, yeah. this should go away, like, it right. should get better. Right. So the goal there was then, you know, let's just have nurses come in, physical therapists, they had therapists come in, and let's just work with you to kind of get it back. Um, and I, you know, I was very, um, I was very focused on doing whatever I needed to do. I was determined to get well. Um, I it was definitely not a poor me. I was hyper-focused on my choices, like, let's try this, let's try that. Is there somebody else that understands this? Maybe there's a, a type of sports therapist. I went up to Boston. Um, I said, you know, maybe they've known, maybe athletes have had this, maybe there's been other traumatic um, injuries like this. So I was definitely on a hunt to try to figure out all the things. And I was very focused on helping myself 
do whatever I could. The challenge is there aren't a lot of things in the toolbox in terms of what you do when somebody's had that response. So it's kind of like, there's nothing we can do for you because there's nothing wrong, basically. On your scans. Right. So you just have to wait it out because when people have that type of a reaction, um, it's basically medically called conversion disorder, which is, it's like hysteria, of, but it's, it's a traumatic disorder of the tissue. And, um, and so you have to wait for the nervous system to correct itself basically. And that can go on for a week, a month, two months. It can be intermittent, it can come and go. And for me, it was, I don't even remember how long, you know, I probably weeks where it was no movement at all. And then I got slightly better. And then I went from, you know, I went into a walker and then I went, eventually went into crutches and then I had a limp. How long was that, that period? So for? this was months and months. And then a full, probably a full year where I, I, then I got put into a body brace which they built like a cast, which went from my ribs to below my hips, which was a stabilizing cast. And it was built like a mold. And that was just to stabilize my torso so that I didn't have any movement of the spine because with every piece of movement, I had any kind of fluctuation, I had excruciating pain. So they were going to put an insert, like a device into my spinal cord that basically severed all of the pain messages from going to the brain. So that was one device that was gonna be implanted into my spine, um, in addition to steel rods, cause I had what's called uh, facet syndrome, which is the facet joints deteriorating. And I also had a disc herniation up in C, um, C1. Um, I decided not to do any of that. I felt like at 35, you know, there was no reason why I should start mechanically interfering with the spinal cord, putting steel rods in probably, you know, would be a horrific thing come 30 years from now in my 60s and 70s. Um, so I'm glad that I made those decisions not to do the interventions. And obviously I didn't respond well to the laminectomy and dystectomy. So I don't know how I would have responded to those even more aggressive uh, types of treatments. So um, unfortunately the options were a lot of narcotics. Um, so about now we went on three years of intensive therapy, physical therapy, occupational therapy, acupuncture, um, every type of therapy you can think of, um, medication, steroid injections, narcotics. I wore For three narcotics. years? Yeah, three years. With little kids? With little kids. Yeah. And at the same time that I was getting my um, diagnosis, one of my sons was diagnosed with seven different developmental disabilities. So we had to take him for therapy, speech therapy, occupational therapy. So he was going to therapy full-time and I was going to therapy full-time. So I had lost my job at this point because I was no chance that I was probably going to be able to return to work. So now I had lost the job that I absolutely loved, um, which I'd had for 10 years at the Fortune 500. I had worked up from an administrative position to the head of investor relations. I worked on the 20th floor of the Prudential Center overlooking Fenway Park. I had a position that I just loved. And um, yeah, and I was devastated. I mean, I think I was more devastated because I had attached my worth to my career and that was my identity. And, um, you know, I think that's really the hard part. I think that we kind of get wrapped up in who we are is what we do and it's our work. And then that kind of gets pulled out from under us. And now you have a traumatic injury. You can't predict the outcome of your future. You have a child who now has developmental disabilities and is struggling. And you don't know where you're going with as far as your role as your mother, as a partner. And, um, and then you lose your career. So it's kind of like all of those things are wrapped up into this one moment, but it's very pivotal because you, you know, you're trying to um, make sense of it all, but you're also the patient, mm -hmm. right? So you're like, you're the victim and you're suffering, but there's also this identity crisis and you're trying to advocate for yourself. Um, so that was really interesting. I, what was, I think at, at the time I, um, I tried to kind of plug the holes in. So I, I ended up, because I was struggling with the identity of losing my job, I joined the board of directors for a nonprofit agency here 
so that I could plug my mind into something, even though my physical body was collapsing. Um, and I served on their board for almost eight years and ended up becoming the chair of the board. They serve um, over 40,000 people in the state with special healthcare needs. But I was like, how can I give back to other people that are suffering, even though I'm suffering? I don't know if that's normal, if that's like people who are in that place of like, literally at the bottom of the barrel and they're like, well, what can I do? But I actually encourage people to do that. I feel like um, the tendency is to feel like when you're suffering that you don't have anything to give. And um, I always think that, you know, whether you can be, be kind to someone else or be great, it doesn't have to be a lot. It's not like, I, the reason I chose a volunteer position was because I wasn't being paid. It didn't have a huge time commitment, but I knew I could give them my experience. You know, I had a lot of business experience and entrepreneur experience. So my intellect was still intact. And, um, and it was only a commitment of, you know, once a month for a meeting. And so that was a huge contribution. Um, but I think it was a lifeline too, uh, during a time of suffering to make that connection uh, to other people that were suffering, you know, in my community. So that was kind of a profound thing for me that I think really made that time matter. Hey, if you're enjoying the show, make sure you head over to rebelhealthtribe.com backslash kit. That's K-I-T. And grab the RHT Starter Kit, which includes a sampler of four free videos from our professional masterclasses and webinars, the RHT Healthy Sleep Guide, the Wellness Vault Coupon Book, which will save you money on all of our favorite health-related tools and resources, a professional product guide, and a coupon for 15% off your first order in our shop. That's rebelhealthtribe.com backslash kit, K-I-T, and you'll get all that delivered right away. Also, if you're on Facebook, we've got a fun, engaging, and supportive group over there as well with thousands of health seekers just like yourself. Just search for Rebel Health Tribe and you'll find us. Thanks for listening. And now back to the show. To answer your question about like, you know, how long is that window that it was really stretched out it was it was a long time of suffering. There was no like, oh, it got better every single day. And then all of a sudden, you know, I threw the crutches out the window and ran down the street. And it was like a hallelujah moment. No, I mean, I had a lot of setbacks, a really, really difficult time. And it was slow, and it was hard. And and there were a lot of times that I wanted to give up, but um, I think for me, what ultimately turned me to the field that of nutrition that I'm in now is because I knew that the narcotics would kill me. I mean, I knew that my liver would never last. I, I knew that I was dying from the inside on the medication, but I didn't have any other choice that I, I couldn't turn off that whole system of pain. I had chronic pain fibromyalgia. I was in early stages of MS at that point. They said there were lesions on the brain. How was that found? You had symptoms aside from the surgical damage that you went and they investigated for that? Yeah. I ended up developing, well, the chronic pain syndrome kind of went hand in hand postoperatively. And I think that really was just triggered, Michael, by the massive amount of narcotics as a result of the surgery. And then you know, so at that point now you're depleting your cortisol. So you're trying to deal with the pain. So you're plugging one hole, but now you're depleting your glutathione, you're, you're contaminating the liver. So you're doing one thing and you're, now the hormones are crashing. So now I'm at 35. Most women get into 35, you automatically, you're dipping in your progesterone, which is normal. But now you want to throw all the drugs at it and I'm bedridden and I'm in a post-traumatic stress situation. And so what's happening now is the body is starting to collapse. And now it also has to deal with the toxicity of the drugs, steroids, the pharmaceuticals. So now it's crashing. So what I realized was I, I'm going to have to dig myself out or, I'm, or the body is just going to fail. Um, and so that's what I did. I originally started studying herbs. I kind of had this inkling that, you know, maybe there's something in nature um, that can turn off the pain signals. If they're trying to turn off the pain signals in the brain, I was trying, I was listening to what my doctors were trying to do with the interventions and then asking kind of the same question. Like if they're trying to turn the inflammation off, if they're trying to turn 
those pain signals off perhaps is something in nature that has that same capacity. So it was kind of a curiosity, which I think was my nature anyway. Um, and so that's what I started doing, kind of asking those questions. So I started poking around and looking at herbs and those kinds of things. And that led down, you know, one path. And then from there, I got curious about, um, you know, different levels of labs. My cortisol was tanked. I didn't have any cortisol, which obviously is an anti-inflammatory, turns off your pain signal. So that made sense. Um, so I think from there, it was just the beginning of that detective work, that, that self-exploration of kind of piecing it all together. Um, and, and I kind of, you know, once you start unraveling that and like peeling back the layers, you realize, oh, there's, there's a lot here. Um, and, and I, once I started doing that, I kind of didn't turn back. So how did you manage two little ones while you were in that kind of, because it's not like you could run around. Um, right. I've watched it with my wife and a lot of people in our community that, you know, there's almost like a, an illness guilt or a, yeah. uh, in, well, in your case, I don't know, illness isn't the necessary right word, but you're not able to do what you feel you should be doing. And so there's right. a, there's a shame or a guilt or a, um, yeah. I know that she always felt terrible about how much I had to do when I was doing all the shopping and the cooking and the taking care of all the house things and taking care of her and managing all the practitioners and stuff. And um, we didn't have little ones during that time. So I can't even imagine trying to throw that into the mix too. But it's, I think I've heard from a lot of people that have been through similar situations that there's a lot of questioning yourself and beating yourself up for yeah, there is. I think it's a great question. I've thought about it a lot and it comes up a lot. Uh, and I've been asked a lot in a lot of different, uh, I've done interviews and I've done some TV segments where people have asked that question. And, you know, I think initially I felt guilty, but I've always felt guilty. I felt guilty going to work. I felt guilty as a working mother that I've, I've not done the right thing. I've left my children. I've, I've, felt guilty as a mother that stays home because I'm not providing enough. I'm not doing kind of right damned if I, you do damned if you yeah, do. I think women, question themselves. women in this society find themselves in pretty often, I think all the time. And, yeah. and I think my children were the motivation for what made me say, I don't want this life. And I want, I don't want them to remember me sick. Um, I think it is very, very difficult for anybody, uh, men or women or anyone, quite frankly, to have chronic illness and to be raising their family. Um, and it ultimately was the motivation for me to pick myself up and say, no one else is going to save me. Um, you know, one of the things that I write about in my work is that, you know, you have to be your own healer. And that doesn't mean you have to do the healing. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm advocating for people to reach out and get help, but nobody knows you like you do no one is going to advocate for you like you are. You're going to advocate for yourself or your child. But your children can be the motivating factor that really pushes you to say, I don't want them to think of me as, you know, someone that's sick and struggling and I want them to remember me. But we can also teach our children empathy and compassion um, by showing them that, yeah, I'm human and I'm having a very difficult time. And this is, um, this is a roadblock that I'm hitting, but I, but I, you know, I don't expect to be, you know, like this forever. And I think that um, we also just, I think it's the language that we use around it and how we frame it. I don't think we have to burden our children with our suffering, even if we're having a hard time. I think hiding it from them is probably uh, doing more of a disservice. I know that when we don't, explain things uh, in a way that helps children understand there's a lot of uncertainty. Like my father lost uh, uh, his brother uh, at a very young age in Ireland uh, many, many years ago. And I recently just learned about this. I did not know this. And they didn't discuss it. They didn't discuss why he died, only that he had an illness. And when they got home from school one day, he was gone. Now, I don't think that's healthy either. I think to not talk about illness or chronic illness or the struggles that we deal with is equally as damaging. So uh, I think you have to find that place that, you know, you feel comfortable with. Um, it was, it was very difficult. I think um, one of the decisions that we made, you know, was I rested in a guest bedroom 
instead of in our master bedroom. And I, I think that was a good decision because I didn't want our master bedroom to be a place of illness or sickness. I wanted to really have that be our, you know, our haven, our place, uh, you know, that was special for us. So there's different things you can do, you know, maybe not everyone has that luxury of having, you know, an additional bedroom or space where they can rest, but there's definitely decisions you can make along the way that help you to navigate. Your, your boys now are like late teens? Yeah, we ended up having a third son okay. uh, later. So now we have a 10-year-old, uh, 15-year-old, and a 17-year-old. Yeah. Okay. And and then the, the autism diagnosis for your son probably pushed you even more into the nutrition spectrum because nutrition and autism, more of a link than nutrition. And obviously it's important to recover, but I, I've been involved. My, uh, yeah. I dated a woman for a while who was a special ed teacher at a school for kids with autism. So we, I got immersed into that world uh, during that time. And it was kind of before I got into all of this. So yeah. my, the autism world was my first introduction to natural health and nutrition and any of that stuff to where I went and got a master's in exercise physiology to become a trainer. And I was going to work with athletes. And that lasted like a very short amount of time because I, I hated it. And I started working with people who were like back injuries or deconditioned or coming back from some sort of surgery. Cause I found it more uh, rewarding to help somebody be able to walk up the stairs when they couldn't than to help somebody jump another inch higher or something like that. Mm. And so I was, the nutrition I learned in that, in my grad school was very, um, food pyramid-y yeah. like <laughs> eat 22 servings yeah. of grains and don't touch any fat and only eat, you know, whole grain, yeah. this and brown rice and broccoli yeah. and tuna fish. And, um, <laughs> so I did that and I hated it. And I was like, am I going to be this miserable my whole life? If I want to be in shape, like, is this just what you have to do? Right. And then at the autism events that she would take me to, I got introduced to like Price Pottinger and, and Weston Price and like these, uh, like things like ghee and yeah. fatty foods that were good yeah. for my brain and like all this stuff. And I'm like, right. what is going on here? What are these people are all crazy this is yeah. nuts. This is totally backwards. And then she's like, just read one of the books. Cause I was hoping if you could tell me if this stuff is legit or not. I'm like, well, I don't know. Okay. <laughs> so then I would be the liaison who had like the education, who was helping the teacher figure out if the, the people at the autism conventions were like as fringe and lunaticy as they're made out to seem, or if this is legit. And, and I'm like, I think this is all real. And that's <laughs> when I found um, Jeffrey Smith's book on uh, GMOs. And I, I read uh, Nutrition and Physical Degeneration. I found the Czech Institute and Paul Czech, and I went through his training, which brought holistic approach into fitness and um, then ended up at FDN because as I went more down that rabbit hole, my clients kept getting more complex. Yes. Like the more complex I was able to handle, more complex people were finding me. And I was like, this has to go further. And so then it was like booths at autism conventions that are what twisted my view from like conventional university education on nutrition and health to what I now believe to be a much more accurate picture of what is actually good for us to, to eat. And um, I would guess, judging by what I've learned of you today, you probably got pretty immersed in your son's well-being pretty quickly. Yeah. And uh you probably had a similar experience when you dove into that world. Yeah, I did. Yeah. It was my greatest teacher, I think, in terms of lots of things, not, not just nutrition, but human health and connection mm -hmm. and compassion and people and all of it. When I did the nonprofit work, but then I also used to do um, support work for mothers who had children with special needs. And this was before the internet, you know, when we had social media groups and everything. So we used to sit in coffee shops with our paperwork and write out our education goals and, um, you know, take big stacks of paper and, you know, really try to help each other navigate what it means to have a child with, you know, Down syndrome or autism or other really complex developmental challenges, navigate the school system and how to meet their expectations. So um, yeah, I I've always been very, very passionate about advocacy work and um, just acknowledging, you know, the best in everybody and who they are and how do they move through the world, you know, at their greatest capacity.
I had no intention of doing anything for my son other than just giving him speech therapy and occupational therapy and whatever therapy he needed to help him live an extraordinary life. He was very happy. I mean, he was nonverbal until he was eight, but also um, just a sweet kid. And, you know, we knew that he was struggling uh, to make social connections because if you're nonverbal and you can't meet your communication goals and you have cognitive, you know, processing issues and all kinds of other things, it's very hard to navigate in our complex world. So, you know, those things certainly concerned us. Um, but it was my own challenges and my own recovery, um, after really exploring the role that nutrition could play in helping regenerate the body and restore the body that I became just super fascinated with, are there things that his brain needs and his body needs that I just haven't really paid attention to, but I just don't understand. So I, I actually did get very curious about are there things that I could do for him that I hadn't really considered before. So when we um, did look into that, or I looked into that more and paid more attention, that's kind of where we started exploring the role of glyphosate. You know, we did that with Me Too. That's when I started really looking at the microbiome and the role of glyphosate and its impact on brain health, when we don't have good diversity and low diversity and how that impacts inflammation and cognitive performance in the brain. Um, I was got very interested in BDNF, which is that how the brain is really processing neurons. And um, he had really significant cognitive processing speed. So his ability to process data in the brain was so severely impacted. So that became really interesting to me. Um, So yeah, we did go down that rabbit hole and um, he was medically undiagnosed at age 12. So he, oh, wow. Yeah, so he no longer meets any of the criteria. He's now a straight A student at 17, high honors, uh, no deficits, no um, vestiges of any illness, no cognitive delays. He was tested uh, at age 12 and, and, and has no, no illness at all, no, um, no other illnesses, I shouldn't say, I don't qualify uh, his autism as an illness, but uh, he had other challenges. He had uh, you know, gastrointestinal illness, he had other developmental related things and cognitive processing stuff. And he also had apraxia, uh, apraxia of the body and apraxia of the mouth, which you may know with some of your study in the physical body, but that's uh, motor planning issues, low muscle tone, no ability to gain muscle. He's uh, very muscular, he runs track and field. And um, so, yeah. Quite a turnaround. Yeah, so quite a turnaround, yeah. So I, you know, I think people always say, well, is it just because you changed his diet and he doesn't, you know, he eats an organic diet and he don't, doesn't have glyphosate? And the answer to that, of course, is no. Uh, he did have extensive therapy you know, throughout his childhood up until, you know, from age three to age or age two to age 11, uh, you know, speech therapy and occupational therapy and all those other therapies. But what we realized was that the glyphosate was really blocking and prohibiting a lot of communication in the body because he had poor gut health and he had poor communication. So he really wasn't getting the full advantage of those therapies. So there was really I think sometimes marrying those two things together um, was very, very beneficial for him. And there was, um, you know, a lot of pieces to that puzzle really came together. So for us, you know, that was something we did at the end because we didn't really understand what we were doing um, at the beginning or we didn't see the value in it. So, yeah, I mean, we talk about that. We ended up doing uh, the documentary film with Jeffrey Smith and Amy Hart um, called Secret Ingredients. And we talk about that in that film. It's about my recovery and our family's recovery, um, but also include that story in there too, just to help people to understand, you know, the importance of looking at the whole body and recognizing the connection of food, not being as the only thing, but an important piece of the puzzle and recognizing that. And like you said, you know, there's always more to it. We always have to look, you know, more at yeah. the interconnectedness, the complex aspects of the human body. But if you don't look at that piece of it, you could be missing an important part of it for yourself. Wow, that's quite a journey for two of you simultaneously, it sounds like. 
<laughs> probably everyone else in your family at the same time. So yeah, because uh, I know when changes like that are made, it doesn't, it's not just you that's doing them. Um, well, the, you bring up a good point too. I often say when, when people are healing together, I talk also about this in my work now about living in congruence, that when we heal together, we are really serving as a catalyst for each other. And I think the reason why uh, my son and I healed so profoundly is because we were really healing together. Um, I don't think that if one of us in isolation were doing it, maybe we would have had such a profound connection. I do think that love is a powerful motivator, certainly between a mother and her child. I, I never underestimate that. I think it is a huge, huge factor. And I think when families heal together, uh, that energetically is really a very, very powerful source of moving people forward. When people try to heal in isolation, even in their own family unit, I think uh, they do get better and they make progress, but I do think that they do hit some roadblocks and there's some stagnation that they can't move through because um, they don't have that collective um, support. So I do uh, want to just point that out because you kind of said that and it mm -hmm. reminded me. Yeah. Yeah, it's the, the connection and the support, whether from family or partner or community or friends is so essential in this regard. And I think it's often overlooked and not really discussed very much either on the functional medicine world, that, that that's another aspect that's kind of glossed over a little yes. bit. And so right now, I just was going to ask you about um, both your nutri Nutritional Intelligence Academy, yeah. which you are teaching the individuals, or is that for professionals? Yes, I, I do give lectures. Um, I'm often a guest lecturer, and I give CE lectures uh, at different uh, institutions, but the Nutrition Academy is mine. Uh, that's where I teach uh, the public. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Public, yeah. And then you're also the founder of an organization called Nourish to Learn. Yes. And I'm interested to learn a little bit more about that too. Yeah. So I actually, that is, um, I haven't done that during COVID because uh, you can't get into different yeah, school schools. Settings. Yeah, exactly. A lot of the public schools, educating them on community foods and what foods really mean and kind of getting in there. So we had done a program here in our own local community uh, where we'd got volunteers and we basically had local farms provide the food and we basically did what was called um, like a taste testing. And then the kids in the schools would try different foods. Because you have to remember that uh, a lot of kids don't have access to fresh produce and because they don't have access, they don't really understand it. They don't understand the benefits of it. So it's really um, taking that barrier away and educating them on what it means and what are the advantages to eating it and what are the benefits of eating it. So you're kind of doing that. And then kids have the tendency to try things when they see their friends eating it and when they can talk about it together and experiment together. So really taking some of those barriers away. Um, and then also working on different programs to educate the parents on what it means to nourish your children in terms of how they're going to be learning. So better um, sports performance and education performance. Sometimes we, we see things as like, I'm gonna eat healthy foods so that I can you know, be thinner or I can mm -hmm. look a certain way. But if you help parents and students understand that academic performance goes up, athletic performance goes up in direct correlation to their Behavior issues. It would be incredible if we could switch schools to serving kids actual food. Like the, yeah, the outcomes yeah. of it and, and not even just actual food, that would be step one. And then step two would be locally grown organic food, really high quality food. Right. Yeah. And I agree with that too. And, but here's, here's what I have found over the years, because I have done work in public schools and I've worked with administrators and they have said, even when we get to a place where we actually improve the quality of the food, the parents are still sending in donuts. We, like if you don't work with the parents and help them understand the connection as well, most of the food is intake is happening at home. Yeah, that's true. Like, I mean, some of it's not. A lot of kids are relying on, on the schools to provide some of their food intake. Usually just lunch, though. Both. Yeah, yeah, it has to be both. We have to work on both mm -hmm. at the same time. It can't be one or the other. So you're doing policy and system change, but also you're doing education at home and um, helping, you know, to, to decrease some of those barriers. So 
Yeah. It's actually helped me have more compassion for my younger self that got in trouble all the time in school because I would eat like a giant bowl of sugar cereal and French toast sticks and orange juice and then go to school. Yeah. And I'd be like wired out of my mind and act like a maniac for the first half of the day. And then I would crash and sleep a lot in school. Right. And both of those things got me in a lot of trouble and told me that I was bad or I was lazy or I was this or I was that. And I was just having sugar rushes and crashes at all times. And (laughs) like, yeah. And ADD. And yeah, it's just, it's helped me understand a lot more about why I was challenged with the issues that I was. And now I notice if I eat a certain way, my attention goes really south really quickly. Like my ability to focus. I've learned recently that I have pretty severe uh, ADD. And if I'm really careful about what I eat and some other practices, it's reduced by like half. Yeah. And if I'm not, then I'll have days where I I can't even keep track of what I'm supposed to be doing. And I run two businesses. I'm in two full-time trainings. Like it's too much, even with a full functioning brain. And then there's days where I just am like, I can't do this. I don't even know what I'm supposed to do. And I've noticed a direct link to to how I eat. And And I think one of the frustrating things about ADHD is that oftentimes people think it's that the brain is hyperactive and therefore it's 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 too revved up and but the reason why people are craving the the sugars and the coffee and sweets and all those things is because the brain is is actually slower and it's looking for the speed in order to quick fast fuel that that's right that's right Mm. so it's it's a misunderstanding so you you're actually trying to fix it with the wrong foods. And so then it's creating the wrong reaction. Like a short-term fix that causes that's, more of a long-term Yeah, that's problem. right, exactly. Yeah. So it's just like, if we understood it better, then we could, you know, provide other things to um, yeah. help it, it, feel more comfortable. Yeah, so you wouldn't be trying to fix it yourself. And I, this brings up something. When we were, we were in Italy um, two summers ago, and... Our friends live in Lucca in Tuscany and they have a nine-year-old child who was born in Italy. Like they're Americans who moved to Italy, but he's Italian. Mm-hmm. Um, it's strange. Their their child has an Italian accent. It's so bizarre. Yeah. But at his school, there's a chef and the local farms in the area provide the food and they have a menu where they don't eat the same lunch twice in a month. And the kid comes home and his mother is a naturopathic doctor and a trained chef. And the kid comes home and complains if she cooks the same meal twice and like within his memory of time, like, oh, we just had this last week or whatever, because he's so spoiled with his meals at school that they rotate every single day for the month that he doesn't think he should ever have to eat the same thing twice (laughs) at home for dinner. And I was just blown away at how different that is than the food culture here not only and granted not everyone's a naturopathic doctor a trained chef and has access to the type of food she can cook but just to have a chef in the school and use freshly prepared meals and the kids get a different meal every day and and he knows that it's good for him Mm. like he likes it like it's exciting to him like when I was younger if you'd have just thrown that at me all of a sudden yeah, I, I would have probably revolted against it. And been like, <laughs> Where's my fruit roll ups and my ho yeah, you know? right. Um, It was just so different. It was so different to see. And I said, I, I can't believe how different that is from school lunches where I came from. And they said, if you put that stuff in front of the kids here, they would throw it back in your face. And I was like, yeah. that's amazing. And, um, yeah. and he loves going to school to eat. And they, the chef is their friend. They all bring him Christmas presents. Like, yeah, um, it's just so incredible. Totally. I was just, I was just blown away totally that, like, that culture yeah. with the food and the, and the kids in the school. And I was like, I can't imagine how different their whole school environment is then because of the kids are not wired and crashing like I was all the time. Right. And their, their brains are getting nutritious foods. And I make my, my boys lunches and we cook a fresh and different meal every single night, um, which I did not grow up on. I grew up on processed food too. Uh, my mother was a, an amazing woman and an amazing mom, but she didn't know what she didn't know. And she did the best she could. Yeah, me too. I'm not saying I, those yeah. things to like throw my parents under the bus. Like, right, yeah, the yeah. Too. And I grew up with a big garden in the backyard when I was a kid. I ate a lot of stuff like straight from the garden. We did eat a lot of fresh vegetables and things with the, you know, eventually the Taco Bell mixed in and the, <laughs> everything else. But yeah, they did the best they could with what they knew how to do. And so does everybody else. Like That's it's, right. 
nobody's intentionally harming their kids and nobody's, right. you know, saying let's feed our kids trash at school so that they suffer. It's just a yeah. lack of, of education and access. You mentioned at the beginning right. too, there's yes. a huge gap in access and what's available, uh, not only functional medicine, but healthy food. I mean, yes. Um, and we have a lot of work to do in that area. So, sure. well, I think I, I don't have any more questions. Your story is remarkable. I, I can't, three years is, is a long time. Now, after the three years, the, the three-year window you mentioned, after three years, you were kind of back to, I don't want to say normal, but moving relatively well, or how long I would long just did say that, that was the, that was probably just the crisis part of it, you know, okay. really just coming out of the, you know. Did you get back to a point where you could participate in that like was many, athletic many, type stuff? Many, many years later. So like um, seven, eight years later. Wow. Yeah. That is a long, like a decade. I mean, a long journey. Yeah. Yeah. And um, once you get out of that crisis mode, and I mean, not everybody's going to have anything that's that really shattering. I mean, mine was pretty traumatic. But I also think what's important to keep in mind too that, um, and that I like to remind people is when you're going through it, it's not like your whole, your world doesn't come to a complete stop. You still have to care for your children. You still mm -hmm. have to feed yourself. You still have to, in many cases, people still have to work. Um, you know, I lost my job, so I had to use, you know, uh, disability money to pay for my care for my therapies things like that if people can't get that then they have to keep working so they can then pay for medications it's a very very difficult thing i am under no illusion that people are really really struggling um that that is really the problem there is no bridge there's no gap between that acute situation and how you get out of it and how you transition and so that one of the reasons why I'm, I'm very passionate about helping people with chronic disease and ending this whole epidemic we have with chronic disease, because I think it's strongly linked to our corrupt food system and the way we care for ourselves. So I, I don't want to just keep focusing on how we're going to care for those people and, you know, providing the supports for them. We have to really just stop the whole thing from collapsing. Um, because, you know, right now we're like one third of our federal budget is for chronic disease and it just, the whole thing is just a complete mess. But what I really feel needs to happen too is we need to have something that is a, a, a better support system for the patient to get them out of that acute state and phase into how they're going to care for themselves long-term that really uh, is part of that transition that looks a little bit more holistic and then get them out of the holistic management, what I call holistically managing chronic disease because that in and of itself is a problem right now. What we're doing now is we're getting people off the medications and we're switching them to supplements. And now they're over supplementing chronic disease pain. So they're taking very, very high doses of lots of different supplements to cover up chronic pain symptoms. I understand there is that gap where you're replacing one less potent thing for another. But if you don't stop doing that, which is what I was doing after that, you know, first three years, then then you get into that five to seven year. If you keep doing that, you're actually not well. You're just managing chronic disease, but you're using another set of tools. And that's where I kind of found myself at the end part where I thought, I'm not really, I'm not really thriving. I'm actually not well. I'm just managing and I'm using more, a different set of tools in the toolbox. But if I don't go to my therapy and I don't do acupuncture and I don't do massage therapy and I don't do chiropractic and I don't take all my supplements and I don't lay down six times and I don't, you know, then, then Go I south pretty quick. I, I collect. Yeah. I'm yeah. Not, it's no good. So I think the fragility of uh, some people's situation, what, what that looks like, that that actually isn't health. And we need to be careful about what we're calling health and what, what we're maintaining. And we need to make sure that that is, um, that that fragility isn't there. And, and that's kind of where my work ended up last year, really looking at who are the people that are actually rebuilding health and reconditioning themselves out of the, getting out of that chronic disease epidemic. They're, um, you know, kind of bouncing forward and, and becoming a, a better version of themselves. They're shedding that traumatic experience um, and ultimately moving forward not going back to what they were because we, there's just, that's not going to happen. It isn't going to happen. 
I'm always going to have this vulnerability. We talked about this before we started recording. I have a vulnerability. I have scar tissue there. I have missing parts of my back. There's no squatting. You know, I'm not going to put stack weights and start squatting. Yeah. It's just not going to happen, right? Triathlons aren't, aren't on <laughs> Yeah, there's no pounding. I mean, I'm almost 50. You know, it's just there's certain things that my body is going to uh, be vulnerable, and I have to be respectful of that. It's something I cringe when I see in a lot of the – I don't go in them anymore. I used to be in a lot of Facebook groups. I don't really go in many yeah, yeah, anymore, you're especially like the chronic disease illness ones. But yeah. Um, and I get that's a step on a lot of people's journey where they learn things. Sure. And I witness a ton of like fatalistic nihilism, uh, like this is doom. No one can ever get better from this. That's because right. the people who are better aren't in the group anymore. But <laughs> just a little suggestion. But um, yeah. I see so many people like I can't wait to be able to eat X again, or I can't wait to be able to do whatever again. Like, yeah. I can't wait to be able to drink wine again every night, or I can't yeah. be able to like all these things. And it's yeah. like, no, that's not the thing. <laughs> it has to, because if you do X, Y, Z things and then you get sick yeah, and then you do all these things to get better, right. if you go right back to X, Y, Z things, what do you think the result's going to be? And yeah. and for some people, like, and you mentioned therapy, like there's, there's a processing that needs to happen around that to accept that. Like, because yeah. at first there's going to be nothing but resistance because you want the thing that you can't have anymore that's until right. you realize that not having that thing makes you feel better. Maybe you don't need the thing anymore. Maybe, yeah. maybe, maybe the thing that was, was something that you were using before because, mm-hmm. you know, your life was, wasn't in alignment or maybe you weren't really doing something that you were meant to do. And so now yeah, you're I used to drink place. a lot. I was in the service industry for 10 years. I yeah. drank a lot. And when right. I was trying to change my life, I stopped drinking. And then I was like, what am I going to do on a Friday night? Everybody's <laughs> out drinking. I'm going to miss all this thing and I'm going to do like whatever. Yeah. And now you couldn't pay me to like go out and drink eight drinks on a Friday night. I'd be a mess until Wednesday. Right. And I thought that I needed that. Like there was an immediate like panic. There's a hole that's gone and there's an immediate like panic. And at the time I didn't have the resources and the knowledge and the tools I have now to be able to like help myself through that. So it was really hard. I did it the hard way. I did it without the the support and the help and the practices and the shifts and any of the things I just like cold turkey my whole life. And uh, it was hard, but there's way easier ways to do it. And having support and people around you that, and you mentioned therapy and counseling and um, just really, yes, there's a, there's a processing that needs to happen that like, that's not going to be my life anymore. (laughs) And, and that's okay. It doesn't have to be like a, I'm, I died and this is the new boring me. It's, this is like a new thing I get to do. And like, I didn't know what it felt like to feel good. That's right. Like, I didn't even know because I never felt good. I just didn't feel as crappy. Like I felt like moderately crappy, then really bad. And then good and good was never a thing. And a lot of people, I think, see that too. They think they were all great before, then they get really sick and then they feel good when they get better. And they realize that that wasn't good. That's right. Like, and and that this can be a new better, like it's a thing and to embrace that and really to shine with that. And that's why this season of this podcast that we're doing this first season, that's what I wanted everybody to see is that the new can be better than it the, is the before yeah you're right yeah. yeah you're like cracking open a shell and it's kind of mm-hmm. uh, painful yeah, it's a new opportunity you're adding new things and I also feel like um you know when you look at it that way and you have that kind of a mindset you know you also create space for new things to come in new people new experiences things that you just hadn't expected and I think when you're always trying to go back to what you did you're just kind of reversing and then um really just creating the same patterns again. So what I like to look at in my own life and other people's is what are the patterns that got you into that predicament? And then you want to break those patterns and create a new set of habits. You know, your beliefs kind of lay that foundation, which then create a new set of behaviors in your life. And then your behaviors ultimately develop, create your ecosystem. That's your, you've got microbiome. It's your behaviors that kind of drive that ecosystem and create that roadmap. And it's just like what we talked about, you know, by not going back and doing the things that you used to do, you're really inviting a whole new set of experiences, people, opportunities, mindset. And um, from there, I think it's just, um, you know, it's a new adventure, which I think sounds like the things that you like, you know, with your new adventures, you know, it's. Yeah, it, it all led me where I needed to be going. 
That's right. So, well, thank you so much for, for sharing this and for turning what's a really challenging situation and scary situation into something that's not only benefits you and, and your son and your family, but also so many other people with the work that you've done. And it takes a lot of people turning their challenges into gifts and into medicine for others to help pull everybody through. Because um, yes. I'm sure there were a lot of people that helped you. Yes. And um, it's That's really right. just paying it forward and, yeah, totally. and helping others through the same stuff that we've gone through. So yeah. thank you so much. Um, I look forward to learning more about your work and, and following what you're doing. And uh, I hope there's more ways we can collaborate going yeah, forward. Yeah, so Michael. I really appreciate what you're doing and your new projects. And I'm really excited to follow you and see where that takes you. So thanks for doing that. All right. Thank you. Yeah. Talk soon. Great. Thanks, Michael. And this brings us to the end of today's episode. Head on over to rebelhealthtribe.com backslash kit to access the RHT Quick Start Bundle, which includes four full-length presentations from our RHT masterclasses, two downloadable PDF guides, and a 15% off coupon, which you can use in our retail shop. If you're on Facebook, come join our Rebel Health Tribe group over there. And finally, if you like the show, please subscribe, leave a review, and share with your friends. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you again soon.